Well, this afternoon, uh, we're going to be returning to our uh, walk through the book of Hebrews. This is actually the <laughs> message that uh, I was going to be giving um, at the end of August. We're in September now, aren't we? At the end of August, but uh, due to some changes in plans, that didn't happen. Uh, so today, we're going to be resuming that message in part seven of Growing in the Greater Than from Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 13, verse 25. Let's hear from God's word as we hear from the section of Hebrews 12 for both this this week and next week from Hebrews 12, verse 18 uh, through verse 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for that if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This praise yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard this, your word, your voice, and we praise you, O Lord, the creator of all that there is and all that there and all that is seen and unseen, the creator of the vastness of the universe, and you, O Father, are our King and our Lord, and you are King and our Lord who loves us and has shown us great mercy in Jesus Christ. And as we approach your word, we pray, O Father, that you might increase and strengthen our faith, that you might point us to Christ Jesus. Speak to us from your word today. We ask, O Lord, that you would do your work in each of us according to your purposes and your wills, your will. And Father, we do ask that you would rest upon this preacher, chain him to the text of your word, that he might freely declare your truth with clarity with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) As we've been studying this idea all the way back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, this idea of growing growing in the greater than, the greater than, of course, being Jesus Christ, who is uh, the greatest revelation from God, who is greater than the angels, who is greater than Moses, who is greater than the priesthood, and who is, who is the greatest sacrifice. And now we see 
And we saw that we, have to, we are called upon to hold on by faith to that greater than. And by faith we have endurance. And now we've been looking at this idea of growing in the greater than. Specifically running the race that is set before us. Of continuing to put one foot in front of the other. Holding on to Jesus Christ and growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We've seen the main command there in chapter 12 verse 1. To run the race set before us looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Laying aside every weight and the sin that he so easily besets. And then we remember the, that even in that race, there's a lot of difficulties and a lot of things that get in our that apparently get in our way, and a lot of things that that cause us pain and difficulty. And we remember the fatherly discipline of our Lord, that God in disciplining us, He is being actually kind and merciful, and He's being gracious for He is growing us, He is training us. It's not just corrective discipline, but it is also formative discipline. It's not just simply what we might consider as spanking, but also uh, engaging in exercise, so to speak, to form our character. Just as those who were in the Navy, when you went through boot camp, you were going to do the push-ups regardless. Because it was formative. And then we saw two exhortations to introduce the next group of ideas to lift up drooping arms and to strengthen weak knees and to make straight paths for us. That when we get stuck, when we find ourselves struggling, we can remember God's goodness to us, the assurance of his care for us in his discipline found in Jesus Christ. And we saw that also we were given a couple, we're given a command in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 and following, in which he says to pursue and he says to pursue two things, to pursue peace with all men and the, ho- the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. To pursue peace with all men, that in Christ Jesus having peace, we have every reason to pursue peace with all men, even our enemies, and to be peaceable even in our engagement and disagreements and in our uh, ways of engaging. And then we saw to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord is a perfect holiness which is not attained in this life. But it is ours in Christ Jesus before God. And we're called upon to pursue that with spending our life pursuing that holiness, which we will never arrive in this life, but we shall one day see it. And we're called to pursue that holiness. And we saw, building on that, uh, some warnings of, uh, not to be one who falls short of the watch out that no one among you falls short of the grace of God or that there's a bitter root of unbelief that can only cause problems or that there would be immorality or godlessness. As you looked at the immorality while there's sexual immorality in view, it's most likely viewing the spiritual adultery of unbelief and idolatry as sexual immorality is dealt with later in chapter 13. When he says, keep the marriage bed pure, as well as godlessness like Esau, which is defined what kind of defines that in which he smelled a nice bowl of soup that his brother had made that may have been conveniently made at the time that he knew he would be coming home. Um, But that Esau smelled this nice bowl of soup, he was hungry and he wanted that soup. And Jacob said, no. 
And he said, but if you sell me your birthright, you can have that soup. And Esau, of course, said, no, it's not worth it. No, he said, yes, I'm going to get, I'll take, I'll sell you my birthright. Just give me that bowl of soup. So he despised his birthright. And so remembering what we have in Christ Jesus and not despising it, which we often do. And now today we're returning to this idea of the superiority of of what we have in Christ Jesus in the new covenant. What is superior to everything that has come before. (coughs) Remember that the temptation that is being addressed over and over in the book of Hebrews to these most likely Jewish believers who facing the threat of persecution, the threat of shedding blood, which he says earlier in this chapter, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. But watching others are saying, are, are, are facing the temptation of returning to, returning to Judaism and the practices of the Mosaic Covenant. And he said over and over and over again, that the real thing has come. The greater, the greater then has come. And that Mosaic covenant served its purposes. But now it's done. And that covenant could not, could not provide and cannot provide what Christ has provided for us. And to return to that would be return not to something, but really to nothing. And so here he is <clears throat> calling upon, he is remembering that temptation And yet how often we forget that which we have and turn to things that are familiar and turn to things that we can see and touch and feel. Because that covenant was one that was really rooted in sensory experience. Rooted in sensory experience. But we're going to see the superiority of what we have in Christ that is not rooted in sensory experience. (coughs) And so when we remember when it comes to our growth, It is only in union with Christ that we find our growth and anything outside of that. And the means he has given us is not something. It's really nothing. It's a really a counterfeit. There's two basic ideas that are being presented here in verses 18 through 24, which is what we're going to look at this week. Next week, we'll look at 25 through 29. But two, two ideas, one is a negative, the other is a positive. Negative being you have not. The positive being you have. Not negative qualitatively, but negative in the sense of this hasn't happened. Positive in the sense of this has happened. The first part of it is you have not come to something. In verse 18 and then in verse 22, he says, but you have come to something else. So first of all, what he says you have not come to has everything to do with the old covenant. He is dealing with the imagery of Sinai, of Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, when Israel, after the exodus uh, from Egypt, goes to Mount Sinai and the old covenant is cut with the people. 19 and 20 and following and they make the covenant they and they state and they state those dreadful words after those dreadful words after the end of it all this we will do they make that commitment this we will do and over and over again this they did not do but here we see the nature of that covenant and how it contrasts with the new covenant 
that's in Christ Jesus. It deals with the very nature of the old covenant of the Mosaic covenant. We're going to see that the covenant to which we have come in Christ Jesus is not merely is not a as as and I believe in covenant theology, but it is not a more mature version of the old covenant, as some would say, but rather it is a covenant of an entirely different substance. It's a covenant of a different substance. We see we're going to see here the substance of that covenant, that it is earthly and temporary and that it is based upon what is seen by and done by the recipients of that covenant. It is what we call a conditional covenant that in order that there are two parties to this covenant, as there are in any covenant. The covenant, though, involves conditions that promises made by one party and conditions that need to be met by the other party. We'll see that the new covenant in Christ Jesus, while it's between two parties, one person makes promises and that person met all the conditions for the other party in the covenant. And so thus it is unconditional for the recipients of it. But it is an earthly and temporary covenant built around life in the land for the nation of Israel and based upon what is seen by and touched and felt and heard by the recipients. It is also one not primarily of hope, but one, as we see, of terror and judgment and not and not hope being rooted in grace, but it's not it's not being rooted in grace, but rather rooted in law and the nature of law and law is good. God's law is good because God gives it, but it must be understood properly. And the very nature of the law at the beginning of the law is this. Do this and live. That is the M.O., the modus operandus, the mode of operating of the old covenant. Do this and live. Not for eternal salvation, but for continued life in the land as a nation. As we're going to see, it's actually a what we call a typological covenant, meaning it testifies of something else. It testifies of that covenant God made with all of humanity in the garden for our eternal life, which we failed to keep of do this and live. He said, obey me and you will live. And we did not obey him. And the Mosaic covenant testifies of that covenant. But we see all this imagery of to what we have not come in verses 18 through 22 listen to the imagery you have not come to what may be touched or as other some other translations might say to a mountain or hill that might not be touched Uh, and even even though it's not here it's later on it's talking about a mountain and part of that was also a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them so first of all something that can be touched Namely, the mountain at which they were. Now, we, we're, we have no shortage of mountains here where we live. We have plenty of them around. It just so happens where we live. As you know, you look at a map. I have friends who want to come visit. and They look at a map and they say, oh, you're so close to the Olympic Peninsula. 
And of course, they're only looking at the map, not realizing that it's a three. It's about three hours of driving and ferry riding and everything like that. But yet we have all these mountains around us, and we can go there, and we can actually get up close and touch them, and experience the snow and all of those things on the mountain, and have that sensory experience. <clears throat> but this mountain, even though they theoretically could touch it, they were actually forbidden from touching it. In fact, it was said that even if one of your animals touches it, the animal is to be stoned. For it was a holy mountain, a holy mountain that that one had to be worthy of approaching. It had to be invited to approach. There's only one who was invited to approach, and that was Moses. And God actually hid himself from Moses when he went there. And when Moses said, show me your glory, the Lord said, I cannot show you my glory in its full display. Rather, I will show you my back. And he declared his glory to him because Moses would not survive. But it's a, it declares the holiness of this place. And anyone touching it would be put to death. We also have this picture of the filled with blazing fire. This morning I talked to uh, someone who, like me, you know, went to uh, Texas A&M, the oldest public university in Texas. And um, we used to build a 55-foot tall stack of woods with about 10,000 trees. I think they still do it, but it's not an official campus activity. Um, The night before we played another school in a city called Austin. And that that would be lit, and there would be probably 60,000 people all gathered around. It didn't matter how far you were away, you felt the blast from those 10,000 trees all burning on your face. And here we have this blazing fire and this picture of scary fire. I mean, fire can be very scary. And the heat from it. The sensory experience, it's not one in which it is saying, oh, hey, look, a nice little fire. This is a frightful appearance. (coughs) As well as the darkness of a cloud that hid the mountain. That is, they could not see what was behind that mountain. It was hidden from their sight. God could not be looked upon and could not be seen. Someone asked me about that today earlier when I preached this down in Coopville. and said, why was God hidden in darkness? Because God could not be looked upon. He must be hidden. Because to look upon him would to bring death. But also this picture of a dark cloud. It is not something that again is comforting. But it is something that is terrifying. You can't see what's going on. And here your leader is up in there in that cloud. With all the sound going on. And plus just the idea of a thick cloud. And then we have the gloom. Think of this. Touching the mountain brings death. So imagine all these other things. It's a time in which of this is a dangerous situation was the feeling and the thoughts among the people. As we'll see that when we read from Exodus 20 in a little bit. And we see the picture of a terrible storm. Here on Whidbey Island, there's one thing that we don't have frequently that I used, we used to have in Dallas a lot. And that is wonderfully and terrifying thunderstorms. 
look outside and you see there's kind of a greenish tint to the air. You think, oh boy, here comes a storm. And, the, and it's, it's silent and still and humid. And then next thing you know, you hear the thunder. And then the storm's upon you and it dumps a bunch of rain. And then the thunder and the lightning and sometimes the hail all comes down. And then you're out there watching it and enjoying it. And then there's a simultaneous lightning strike with thunder and you run inside. It was a terror of those. It was this. And imagine this. It was a terrifying thing. One of my favorite pieces of classical music has a couple of movements that are some of the most well-known movements, but people don't know that it's part of a, uh, a part of a, this piece that also has one really famous movement that everyone knows, the William Tell Overture. The William Tell Overture, the last movement is what everyone knows, you know, the Lone Ranger theme song. However, thanks to cartoons from the mid-20th century that popularized the other two movements, one is about a storm in the William Tell Overture, and you listen to it, and you hear the kettle drums banging, and the the flutes and clarinets bringing the down sound, and the loud sounds, and then afterwards, there's the movement called Calm, which is just the nice, quiet sounds of the the calm after the storm. Consider the power of that storm movement. But it was a terrible storm. And then there was the sound of a trumpet. I'd say, well, I kind of like the trumpet. Again, this is a loud, blaring sound that blasts people's ears and you have all this going on. We might have a sense of what we call sensory overload. And then there is the voice. The voice. They hear the thundering of God's voice. And it evoked fright and terror in the people, as we'll read in a little bit. But notice the senses that are evoked here. They, the touch, seeing, hearing. And then with, uh, with, the, with the loud voice and the trumpet and the storm, all of the senses being evoked at once. And so it's a, uh, rooted in a sensory experience. And if we look at the Old Covenant, it is largely built around things that are seen and things that are touched. The sacrificial system, seen and touched. A temple made, <coughs> excuse me, a temple made with human hands that you can walk into and touch and feel and observe. And in Exodus chapter 19, from 9b, which is the second half of verse 9 through verse 25, in the preparations and commands to be given to not touch the mountain as well as what's to occur, occur, it is told if a beast that touched it, it would be stoned. So in the preparations... And what Moses is told to tell the people, <coughs> he is, it is said that it's, not, it's going to be a very solemn and serious occasion. And then in chapter 20, we see the actual event. And chapter, Exodus chapter 20 is one of the monumental events of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, God's abiding moral law applied specifically with certain things that are tied specifically to Old Covenant Israel, but yet they are based upon the Ten Commandments, which is God's abiding moral law. And it's being placed in application to the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Words. And in verses 18 through 21, after giving of the Ten Commandments, we see this being said. Now when all the people saw the thunder... And the flashes of lightning 
and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It was frightful. And Moses it goes on to continue. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so you see their response was, this is too much for us. You just deal with this, Moses. We're going to stand far off because this is terrible. Terrible being full of terror. It is terrifying. Psalm 68 verses 7 and 8 speak of the same event when it says, Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel. Now, let me ask you, when we look at this brief description of the imagery in Hebrews chapter 12, is this something that we would see primarily as a comforting and assuring image? It's not intended to be. It is actually a very frightful, scary image. It's one that evokes fear. It's one that evokes the idea of possible judgment. It evokes a sense of this is something that is very serious. And what we have here is the testimony of the law. The testimony of the law which the old cov- of which the Old Covenant testifies. As we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, one thing that we've seen many times over and over again is that the law and the Old Covenant itself was incapable of bringing about perfection. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says it was useless to that end. Useless to that end, to bring about perfection, of making one righteous. It is because of the fact we already broke the law in the garden. We failed to obey God. We broke his law. And we now are bound in sin because of the weakness of human flesh. The law cannot bring about perfection. But we've seen in Hebrews that there's a greater righteousness that is given to us by faith in the Son the one who is the greater than his righteous being count, righteousness being counted to us just as in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 it says as Noah became the heir of righteousness that is by faith just as Abel's sacrifice was accepted not because he presented a better sacrifice but because Abel was accepted by faith that's why his sacrifice was accepted <coughs> Because Jesus, this greater than, is our high priest. And this high priest who was heard from Hebrews chapter 4 on account of his own reverence. The other priesthood had the high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin. To be able to present a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Jesus was heard on account of his own reverence. Because he obeyed God perfectly. He fulfilled the terms of the law. Do this and live. He alone of all people to have ever existed. Merited an ear with God. Because he fulfilled the terms of the law. 
which says do this and live. By his reverence, we have access to God. <clears throat> and we say that's all well and good. And we might often we even say amen to that. But then when it comes to our own growth and our own sanctification, we often set all that aside and forget it all. And say, now it's me. Now it's on me. Now it is all about do better, try harder. And while the law is our guide and living in grati- for, for living in gratitude for the great gift given to us, all by itself, the law does not produce anything. Rather, what happens when we seek to live in accordance with the law is we are called to do. We see how far we fall short. And we are once again driven back to our Lord Jesus Christ. Whom not a single one in this room has looked at. Whom not a single one in this room has touched. Whom not a single one in this room has heard his actual voice. But yet we're drawn back to him. And we'll talk about that more in the second part of this This, this passage today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Verse 6, it actually has one of the most misquoted uh, verses of Scripture, which says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And it's misused, often spoken of that, well, we don't need the Word of God. All we need is the Spirit of God, and the Spirit dwells within us, so we don't need uh, God's Word anymore. That seeking to be true to God's Word is actually... Uh, bringing death. It has nothing to do with God's written revelation. Rather, it has to do with God, with the law and the old covenant. Listen to Second Corinthians three seven through eleven. The ministry of this old covenant was not one of life, but of death and condemnation. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." number of assertions there, the old covenant was temporary, not permanent. What Christ has done and what he has provided is permanent. But notice that the glory which, is, which, we, which we have not seen with our eyes is far greater than the glory of that which was actually seen. And that old thing did not bring life, it brought death. Because that was the design. The design was to testify of our inability to fulfill God's righteous requirement and the need for a sacrifice, the need for an atonement. See, the letter that brings death is a covenant of works. That's what we call the covenant God made with us in the garden. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is the same of that same substance as the covenant we entered into in the garden, which said, do this and live. Now we might say, but there is no, the word covenant doesn't appear in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Well, I first of all would say the word trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible either. 
but we believe the Trinity, don't we? Yeah. So, however, all the all of the elements of a covenant are present. In a, uh, there is a there is there is one who makes the covenant. There's one who receives the covenant, and there are terms that are given. But also Hosea chapter six verse seven. We must remember that the there's one infallible interpreter of Scripture. It's not me, nor is it John Calvin. But rather, it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. And Hosea chapter six, verse seven says this. But like speaking to Israel in his condemnation of Israel and Judah, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there. They dealt faithlessly with me. What is it asserting there that there was a covenant with Adam that he broke? And Israel has broken the same type of covenant, a covenant of works. Romans 5, 12 through 18, speak of similar language of there being two Adams, the first Adam and the final Adam, the first Adam who brought condemnation by his disobedience, and the second Adam who obeyed and brought life. This is covenant language. Two covenant heads who represent their respective uh, people. This old covenant is one that will not and cannot save or sanctify, for it is one that is temporal and points to a greater reality. Our hope and life is not in what we see and in what we experience. Our hope and life is in that which is not seen. We've mentioned this before. But Martin Luther uh, put a scriptural teaching to words in the form of what he called a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. Theology of glory, he accused the Roman Catholic Church of being bound up into that. With this, God's glory and blessing is seen in what we see and experience in what we perceive. So our performance, our power, our prestige according to a theology of glory, tell us of God's blessing for us. That if we have all of these things, then clearly God's blessing is with us. That's a theology of glory. However, he spoke, a true theologian is the one who, has, who lives by a theology of the cross, which is this, God's glory is not in what we see and experience Rather, God's glory is only known and his blessing is only seen and known through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not in that which is seen we see God's true glory and blessing, but, in only what, but it is only perceived through the cross. He asked this question, How did God bless his son, the man Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly and always obeyed him and never once committed sin? Well, there was a resurrection that came through a certain path. He blessed him through the suffering of the cross. Not through the roar of a lion, but through the dying bleats of a lamb. That is how he blessed his son. How often do we fancy ourselves as roaring lions, as powerful and going to take on the, the Goliaths of our life. 
that we are the hero of our story. And how often do we end up getting destroyed by those Goliaths? Because you and I are not the heroes of our story. The Lamb of God who made satisfaction for our sin is the hero of our story. I'm very disturbed, especially when coming from the voice of professing Christians, of saying, I'm no sheep. Yes, you are. You're a sheep of the you're, you're a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not roaring lions, but we are needy sheep. So God is glorified not in our strength, but he is glorified in our weakness. For it is in our weakness that he works. It is in our weakness that he is displayed. Because it shows our neediness and his sufficiency. But how often you and I focus on our attention on what we can see, whether it's power or influences or riches or even probably the death knell of them all, comparative righteousness. By comparative righteousness saying, well, you know, I got my sin, but, you know, I'm not like them, you know. I've still I'm not like them. After all, I know that I'm a man. When in reality, we are equally sinners as everyone else. Comparative righteousness is no, is no standard of God's blessing. We thank God when he gives us good things for every good and heavenly gift comes from the Father. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. But understanding that difficulty and hardship and weakness is as much a blessing of God as is anything else. An NFL quarterback, I think in what, 2005, 2006, made waves when he was the quarterback of the winning team and someone said, what are you going to do? And he said, thank you, Jesus. I said, amen to that. He said, thank you, Jesus. But oh, how I want to hear the quarterback of the losing team say, thank you, Jesus. And how often do we chase after these things, which are really just fool's errands that we are warned against over and over and over again, for they take our eyes off Jesus, who is our greater than. They are but an unending staircase of a covenant of works, an unending staircase that leads to further destruction and further sin. There's a reason he warns later, in Hebrews chapter 13, when he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If we can just get that bit of glory, that bit of influence, that mountaintop experience, we will have arrived. When in reality, we already have everything that we need. For we have Christ Jesus, as we're seeing next in verse 22. So what we've not come to is a covenant that is built around works and built around what is seen and touched and experienced. What we have come to now is Mount Zion. We've come to Mount Zion, and he gives a number of different ways of restating that. Come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering. 
to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus. We have come to something far better. He uses, first of all, Mount Zion and say, and notice none of us right now are standing in Jerusalem, which is another way of speaking Mount Zion. But yet we have come to Mount Zion. He's not speaking about taking a pilgrimage but that if we've come to Christ Jesus, we have come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What was it for which Abraham was searching when he went that many years ago from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land that the Lord God would give him? While there was an actual piece of land to which he was going, that's not what he was really seeking. He was seeking a city with foundations that are built by God himself, not a city of this earth. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16 is a review. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, one man, therefore from one man and him as good as dead, were born innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. We're born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the thing promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They weren't looking for a piece of land in the Levant. That was a temporary circumstance that, lo- that brought about something greater. They were looking for an eternal city, a heavenly city. And they found it as Abraham was justified by faith because he believed God looking to the Christ whom he saw but through a foggy glass. Hebrews 13, verses 13 and 14 say this, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There's a problem, I I would argue there's a problem when we begin feeling too much at home in this world. This city, though, does not, this city does have a visible manifestation in this age. This city is the dwelling place of God. And I would ask you, where is the dwelling place of God in this, in this age, in this life? It is in his temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, God's temple is his church composed of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. And the individual Christian, 1 Corinthians 6, is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. It's visible in local assemblies of the gospel such as this one and every other true church. It is, but it is but a taste of that which is coming. 
we see dimly as through a foggy mirror. We've come to a festal gathering of angels. This is speaking of a heavenly presence. And say, I don't see any angels around me. How is it we've come to this festal gathering of angels? Does not Jesus say that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous? There is a festal, joyful gathering of angels because God is fulfilling his purposes in redeeming a people for Jesus Christ. And again, we don't see this, but it is ours. And then again, he evokes the imagery of the church with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. An ecclesia, he says, an assembly, an ecclesia. And we see the church visibly in local assemblies. But the vastness of it and the full glory awaits us, as we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is to what we have come and that is to what we are part of. God sees the end from the beginning. We see what's right now. But we are, we, this is for us to believe. This is to what we have come. And all of this is bound up and tied to what comes next and to Jesus. We've come to Jesus. All this is true because we've come to Jesus. Who is the mediator of a new covenant. Who has given us a better blood. He's the mediator of a new covenant that is not one of terror and wrath, but one of grace and friendship with God. Martin Luther said that if we know Christ, we know the friendly face of God. He also said that when the devil comes and tells us that we are whispers in our ear, that we are that we deserve death and hell because we are so full of sin. He said, well, you, we tell the, you tell the devil, I admit that I deserve death and hell, but what of it? Because I know one, Jesus Christ, Son of God, who made it satisfaction for my sins, and where he is there, I shall be also. And just as blood was sprinkled upon the altar year after year after year, a greater blood has come that, washed, that has washed us once and for all. A sacrifice that was actually accepted for eternal forgiveness because it was shed by one who merited it, who obeyed God's law. And it is with the blood of one whose sacrifice was accepted by God once and for all. In fact, he uses the illustration of the blood of Abel. We know the story of Cain and Abel. I assume we do. But Cain and Abel were the, were the, two, son, were the two sons of Adam and Eve. We mentioned Abel earlier. And God accepted his sacrifice because Abel was accepted by faith, so his sacrifice was accepted. Canaan's was not accepted, and he was jealous. 
and Cain accepted this, and Cain, not Cain, and Cain accepted the, 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 the situation and said, okay, it's all right. No, that's not what happened at all. Cain got jealous, and in a fit of rage, most likely, he killed his brother and murdered him. And Abel's blood, it says, made a cry. Abel's blood spoke a word. Abel's blood said this. Avenge my blood. It cried for justice. It cried for wrath. But the blood of Christ speaks a better word. The blood of Christ speaks this. Forgive them. The blood of Christ says forgive them. It cries for mercy. It cries for reconciliation with God. John Calvin says of this passage. Let us remember that gospel is here compared with law. And secondly that this comparison has two parts. The first, that the glory of God shows itself more clearly in the gospel than in the law. And the second, that the calling of God today is in friendship when previously it held nothing but sheer terror. And he goes on to say, provided that the gospel is received by faith, it contains only love. And again, remember 2 Corinthians 3, which we referenced earlier. That we have a far greater realization in Jesus Christ. The greater glory and the greatest glory in this age to be made known. Because you see in Jesus Christ we have come to that which is permanent. More permanent than the things we fear and the things that we cherish. None of those things can bring about that which only God by his spirit can do. So often we get caught up into things thinking that we don't have enough. About eight years ago, seven years ago, I'm not going to make myself that old. About seven years ago, I was driving my hospice route and I turned on the radio and I heard a song. And the song, it was a Christian radio and the song just broke my heart. The singer was crying out for something. He was missing something. And he said, I need a new start. I need a new revelation. And my heart just ached for the person making that cry. Because, brothers and sisters, we don't need a new revelation. We already have the greatest revelation. We need to believe the revelation that we have in Christ Jesus. If we're, but we might say, if we're talking about growth in this section, why are we talking about all this grace and mercy stuff? Do I not need to have a fire lit under me? It's a sense of fear and a sense of dread if I'm to grow in sanctification. Do I need, not need to have a hammer hit over my head? But remember this. If we leave this first principle, that in Christ we have the immensities of God's blessing and mercy, even though we may, suffer, we may suffer and even though we are still full of sin, if we leave that first principle, we kneecap ourselves and sabotage our own Christian walks. But how often we do, how often we do that, each and every one of us, which is why we must always have this reminder a book that I've been reading called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. You can probably guess which century that came from, the 17th century, um, by an author by the name of Marshall. 
He's speaking about sanctification and growth in the likeness of Christ. And each chapter, while he talks about different things about growing, he hits on this over and over and over again. We must know what is ours in Christ Jesus. We must be we must be assured of his grace if any of this is to be true. So in order to grow and to persevere, which is part of growth. To turn from sin, we must live in the knowledge of what we have in Christ Jesus, of who he is for us and in us. And so when the world throws stuff at us, and it will, and it does, whether it would be persecution or whether it would be look at the world around us and say it's all, it's all scary and troublesome, instead of despair, instead of anger, instead of protest, instead of wrath, all which make a mockery of our profession, Rather, let us keep hold on to Christ. Thus, we can pivot as we need. But let us hold on to Christ. We can have compassion on our persecutors. And yes, you heard me right. Compassion upon our persecutors. Those who, like we once were, are bound in the yoke of slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And not just those in faraway lands. I was listening to a podcast this week, catching up on a certain show's podcast. You know, I'm about five years behind on all my shows. Um, but when I was listening to, they were talking about mission. And uh, the, the title of the episode was Forgiveness for, for the Homeschoolers and the Hitlers. And it was talking about how we will, will, we will hear about people bound up in sin and bound up in all sorts of rebellion and faraway lands. And our response is, let us send missionaries. Let us send money to that. But then when we see it in our own backyard, we say, let us end this. Instead of with compassion of the gospel, knowing that's the first thing that's needed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But those right here in our backyard... And when we look at the world and all of its trouble, as we've said this before, we often say this is the worst it's ever been and the worst it ever will be. Well, welcome to the history of Christianity and the history of the church. When you read church history, every generation says the exact same thing. It doesn't change. But one thing that doesn't change is that we have come to that which is greater than anything that ever is. That has been. So brothers and sisters. In closing. We have this wonderful truth. That has been given to us. To what is it that we have come. We have come not to something. We can see and touch and handle. But is a far greater hope. Than anything. That we could touch or see or handle. And from that is a richness of God's grace and mercy and strength to live. So let us rest in Christ and his provision that we might grow. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name for your sufficiency in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would keep turning our eyes, turning our eyes to Jesus Christ, to look to him and trust him and hold on to him, that we might grow. And we pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.